what was doesn't work. People are always striving for size, to be a giant. And this is a symbol of how giants fall. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that isn't afraid to say, God damn, America. Several times in Opus. When Nina Simone said (laughs) Mississippi, God damn, they acted like she just cursed Jesus Christ himself, you know. Mm -hmm. And now we're out here trying to get God damn America on opera stages. But, you know, you know, things... The, the, the opera world is what it is, so I suppose we'll have to we'll have to get into that, huh? The Tulsa Opera Hoopla. Mm-hmm. I think we're really starting to see what people are made of, aren't we? Last summer and following, the conversations were heavy. Mm-hmm. The these digital and other collaborations were heavy. Mm-hmm. Outside is beginning, beginning, beginning to think about opening up, at least in our part of the country. Right, and uh, it's time to pay the piper. And and they did they were not ready to do that. Mm. We'll get into it. I think we're going to see more of that across the. I think this is one of many things that we're going to see. Mm-hmm. How are you? Versus speaking of beginning, beginning to to open up outside. Is is are these whole are all of these fifty degrees? Uh, oh, finding man. you well? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there were a few days. There were a few days recently that I got stuck in a rut, and I was in the in a low point for a couple of days but it's amazing what more hours in the day with daylight Mm -hmm, and warmer temperatures will do for your mood yeah just a a walk with radar and you know things usually look up pretty quickly and with everything in the news it's hard not to find yourself in a space i was in a not so great space last week we had the tragedy in atlanta Mm -hmm. that we're dealing with um, among other things so but, and as we speak tonight, there was a, a mass shooter uh, situation going on in Boulder. Uh, I think it was, uh, don't quote me, there, was, there were some people killed and they have apprehended a suspect. So I guess we're entering into shooting season. Grateful for life. Grateful for life. What a way to start a podcast. <laughs> Let's pick it up. Grateful for life. Thank you, everyone, for being here, for joining us for Opus 93 of the Triloquy Podcast. To the returning listeners, I say it every week and I mean it every week. This would not and could not be possible without you. Thank you so much for your continued support. To the new listeners, thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast that is reframing the phrase classical music to a point, Scott, to where we talk about all sorts of classic musics. Even some uh, country. Yep, at least today, we mm-hmm. rarely talk about country. A lot of people rarely talk about country. But we have a platform here, and uh, we have a responsibility to all classical music, especially uh, the American sort. So um, after some connections and some introductions and many, many email requests, we are delivering today with a very... Um, incredible conversation with the one and only Rissy Palmer. We featured some of her music on the on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. We actually get to hear some of her perspectives at the intersection of race, blackness, and so-called country music. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to see how similar the conversations were, huh? It, yeah. We, we were not... All, we were not not on the same page. It right. just it just the it just happens to be that the the genre the so called genre was different, and some surprising intersections in the conversation too. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, support for this opus of Triloquy comes from East, the Eastman School of Music's Disruption Action Change Series, creating a more just and equitable arts ecosystem. I had the pleasure of being on this series last week with the one and only Joel Thompson. Um, coming up next week is Antonio Kyler, um, uh, an opera professional, really doing some incredible things. And the, the series is going to wrap up on April 5th with the women of the Classically Black Podcast, friends of the show. Huge shout mm-hmm. out to Katie and Delaney. You can get more information on Disruption Action Change on the website of the Eastman School of Music. I'll also have a link in the description of this opus. Today's downbeat, Scott, comes from a woman named Grace Lee Boggs. Had you heard of her? Do you know who she nope. is? Yeah, I, I um, came on to, to her legacy uh, late last week in, um, in response to the tragedy down in Atlanta. I felt like I needed to do my due diligence and learn something, not post a yellow square, not post a hashtag, but learn something. And mm-hmm. I did. And uh, I can't wait to um, share that with y'all, actually in the fourth movement, because it's, it's pretty true what uh, what got me there and what inspired me to to, to really um, look at that um, Scott you have some uh, some home cooking today some Omaha flavored uh, things to talk about how you, how about you preview that a little bit you remember about a year ago when we took ownership of the podcast we were talking about opening it up to being you know stories from the fringes of arts the arts right. you know to include dance and mm-hmm. theater and literature and things. Um, Monica Bauer is uh, a playwright that heard me talking about the Shelter Belt, and she says, I've produced, I've had shows produced there at the Shelter Belt in Omaha, Nebraska, of the theater that I'm a uh, co-founder of. And she sent me her play that has been doing really well at some uh, um, theater festivals called Vivian's Music 1969, and it all, uh, she gives life to... Um, uh, a woman, 14 years old, shot by police, uh, named Vivian Strong in 1969. Yeah, so we'll get some of that women's history uh, mm-hmm. this week and some art that uh, came from that in the in the first movement. So yeah. let's go ahead and get into that first movement. I want to start out the accidentals with a few naturals. So again, for the newer people, when we put sharps or flats next to things based on how we feel about the news story or the event or whatever, sometimes we come back with uh, some naturals just to, um, mm-hmm. to, to fix correct or it. to correct or mm-hmm. to um, highlight. Um, so what I wanted to highlight first was Nicki Minaj. I brought Nicki Minaj up last week, of course, because we're, we talk about the Grammys and how they've she always disrespected her, mm-hmm. uh, but how her music um, is is impactful and can be impactful for far more people than we think about. You know, I was talking about the tune uh, Pills and Potions. Mm-hmm. Well, all of the podcasts that I listened to brought up Nicki Minaj, so I just want to give one more shout out and honor to, to this woman who has been so impactful. Um, in music, uh, in women's history, and, and so many other things. The other natural that I wanted to bring up, the little Band-Aid that I want to uh, put on last week, Silk Sonic. The band's name is Silk Sonic. <laughs> right. No shade. We, no. we love the song. We're here for collaboration. Yeah. Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars, you know, by, uh, separately they're incredible. Fuse them together. You have Silk Sonic, something incredible. I do have to say though, the Silk Sensation is a is a good <laughs> name. I, let's write that we one might, down. Yeah, we let's might keep have it. to keep that one. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> um, 
And uh, also, I wanted to, Scott, invite you, to, and this is not based on any feedback or anything, but just my sitting with it over the week. I wonder if you could just, in a nutshell, just clarify and, and speak to what you were talking about last week. You offered a flat mm-hmm. to the news that the Floyd family got a $27 million payout from the city of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. It's not a flat that they got the payout, no, but rather the publicity of it and how that would impact the trial. I was referring mainly to the way the defense's lawyer, Chauvin's lawyer, reacted to the news of that settlement because his contention was it polluted the potential juror pool um, that Chauvin, you know, we know he's guilty, but he would not be able to get anything close to a fair trial. And so I brought that up thinking, what if he calls for a mistrial? Right. What if it gets moved to another community that isn't going to be as sympathetic? That that was my concern. But hey, I do have an update on that, though. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, the judge has said it will not be moved and it will not be delayed. And they only need to seat one more juror. So by next Monday, the trial will, will be set to begin. So, yeah, let <sighs> Stressful me times. Let, let me again say um I don't think that there is any amount of money that you can give to a family that is not. going to make amends. I think it is good that they got something that they that they can uh use obviously, but my flat was next to the story of that um th- that coming out at such a time that it it really threw the 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 uh, trial into a tailspin for about a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that it's a news. perspective that I hadn't uh, thought about, the yeah. publicity of that. So, all right, just wanted to get those out of the so way. So now we're so, all natural. So so, so now we're... All natural. Now, now to this week's events. <laughs> Getting to a little flat here. <laughs> I'm reading mm-hmm. from the New York Times. Met musicians accept deal to receive first paycheck since April. Let me read a little bit here. This is dated uh, March 17th. The musicians of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra have voted to accept a deal that will provide them with paychecks for the first time in nearly a year in exchange for returning to the bargaining table where the company is seeking lasting pay cuts that it says are needed to survive the pandemic. I want to skip down a little bit and uh, read something from the Met. Um, The Met says, we're very pleased that our agreement with the orchestra has been ratified and that they will begin receiving bridge pay this week, the Met said in a statement, along with the start of meaningful discussions towards reaching a new agreement. As long as they're meaningful. We're, we've been we've been talking about this for a while. Scott, this feels shady to me. This feels a little shady. Does it? Mm-hmm. All, after, after all of this time of no pay, uh, one, one of the other things that the, uh, this article um, states, it says, while the union representing the chorus agreed to the deal more than a month ago, the orchestra's union took longer to accept the deal. Now, remember when we were talking about Lincoln Center? Versus the Met and mm-hmm. folks, you know, the stagehands taking the deal mm-hmm. and the music, you know. So, again, we're over and over again, we're seeing the musicians hold out. Why? There has to be a reason. And I trust that the musicians aren't just being bratty about it. There has to be some issues there that they're holding out on or something that we don't know that could adversely impact them down the road. That That's, that's what I feel. That's yeah. what I feel from this. I haven't read this piece, but... Um 
fifteen hundred. What? First off, what is a bridge fund? Is so, that is this some? Are they saying we're just going to tide you over? Right. This is this is okay. So come to the negotiating table. Let's talk, and we'll give y'all y'all's little allowance until we figured this out. And that's in New York, fifteen hundred a week. Fifteen hundred a week isn't horrible, and there's a lot of people in New York See, have no that have of, to survive on yeah. fifteen hundred a month, much less right. fifteen hundred a week. So yeah, I have no frame of reference. I'm I'm, I'm not going to say that the Mint musicians are just down and out, and. I'm going to say that that's not what they usually get paid and all that. So, Without being able to see all the, circum- the other circumstances outside of this article, you're, you've worked in a professional orchestra. Mm-hmm. What would you hold out for? That is a great question. For me... It would. I'm. I'm trying to think because there. There were times down with the Knoxville Symphony when things were getting dicey for a little bit. And really. I'm, and I'm trying to remember. I mean, I. Th- I think it must have been an issue of pay. I happen to have a position that, you know, the pay was as such where I would make the sacrifice of that pay to make the point if it came to going on a strike or doing something. Mm. There are other folks in the orchestra whose entire living was based on that. Wow. So. There, of course, they're going to be a little slower to move, and and understandably so. Mm-hmm. Especially folks, you know, there were there were couples in the orchestra with children, and you oh, know, wow. so you know, yeah. how how can both parents, you know, lose their what a blow, their sal- you know, so there 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 are circumstances behind everything. Maybe there's a little bit of that here. What I keep coming back to, Scott, is the Met is just so mired down in mess, yeah, that this is. We're we're applying Windex to a mud pit. Yep. You know, in, yeah, in I, essence, I feel that. Yeah. Um, what was it we said a couple opuses ago? It's it's just going to suck to be Frank Frank Wallace. <laughs> it's going to suck to be the Met. It's going to be a suck while. to be the Met for a while. As, or or maybe not. We'll see. Something that I've been thinking about is uh, streets begin to open back up. Shout out to Katie, uh, by the way, uh, Katie Brown. She has that fellowship with the Memphis Symphony, and she said that uh, she was in the hall for the first time last week for a performance, mm. and there the, the hall probably seats about 2,500 people. Uh, she said the max was 200, so there were 200 people spread out in there. She felt like that was a, a lot. But she she really? she called that a southern amount of people because down south you know the pandemic the 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 pan African is over down there so really okay <laughs> uh, so I think there's that I think we're we're uh, siphoning even further who has access to this stuff anyway because none of the none of the opera houses or concert halls need to be opening up the doors and doing full capacity anytime soon right if you ask me so if we're doing you know 25 percent 10 percent capacity that's you know we're 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 we're, we're slicing the pie even thinner yeah. to the the most upper crust of people or the most you know and and I think there's that problem is is ahead of all you know institutions, um, but 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 certainly the Met. But anyway, they're they're getting their little allowance. I think a lot of people are viewing this as a victory. But the fact that they held out so long tells me that there's something going on behind the scenes. So that's why I, I give it a flat. Yeah, I have that's to why wonder. I give it a flat. I'm 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 thinking about them though. When when this whole thing started, I was like, oh, who gives a fuck about the Met musicians? They making all that money in X, Y, and Z. As the pandemic has gone on and. Uh, We've seen when when we saw the playing field leveled, mm-hmm. it it helped me get a different perspective on things. I really don't care about the institution of the Met, if I'm going to be honest. But the musicians don't deserve to be down and out because the folks at the top of the castle are fucking up, mm-hmm. are are doing whatever they do. So, my thoughts 
are going out to him. I probably will never be. I, I would say I, I would love to go to a Met performance, but hell, the way uh, shout out to Jonathan, who uh, homie who lives in New York, the way those tickets are, I can't. I'm, I'm not spending six hundred dollars to go oh, see nobody's no. nobody's opera. No, sorry. I mean, if is beyond is it a Beyonce opera? I'll think about it. It's probably not. So <laughs> anyway. Um, since we're talking about country music today and we're in Women's History Month, I, uh, I thought I would uh, try to find all of the transitions <laughs> out of these accidentals that I could that were on theme. Mm-hmm. After a little bit of uh, research, I found a woman named Kelly O'Hara. And uh, she, uh, a few years back, uh, 2017, uh, shout out to Radar there, Dreaming, she did a... Um, a uh, performance with the Orlando Philharmonic Orchestra of this sort of country pops thing. And on the program was a tune called They Don't Let You In the Opera. So sort of how, you know, they don't let the country folks in the opera, huh? I guess. I wonder, if, I wonder, I want to, I need to talk to somebody from that perspective. Do you know anybody? <laughs> this is get. this is quickly getting problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting to see who, my, who my, I might my, know. My point is, I think it's a really cool song. Again, talking to, we're, we're having, we have some country music coming up this week a song uh, from the perspective of someone who doesn't see themselves in opera mm-hmm. not from the black perspective for, but from a, a different perspective a country music perspective a country so perspective let's, let's check out a little bit of this they don't let you in the opera a performance featuring Kelly O'Hara and the Orlando Philharmonic so if you find your heart is set on both Memphis and the Met and they force you to choose screw and gold go sing the blues but your ass you can sing Did you hear the news, by the way, about how they're wilding out down there in Florida? I have, yeah. Eight o'clock mm. curfew. Mm. <laughs> what a what a what a blessing to to live way up here, where yeah. they don't come for spring break. <laughs> not to be not to be out at the beach anyway. Right. <laughs> Unless you're I mean, doing but, a polar dive. Could you? I mean, it, does the North Shore need to batten down the hatches in ten years? Is that going to be the crowd up there? Is it going to be people from all the country doing that? Yeah, when, country doing when we that? need potable water and uh, and mild temperatures. Yeah, I think the North Shore will be like a, a new Riviera. Ooh, thoughts and prayers to South Beach and all y'all that live down there in Florida. I can't imagine. But I heard I've heard a lot of people in the news reports and also online saying that if you live in if you live in Miami, you don't go to South mm-hmm. Beach. So this is all people coming in, right? Yeah. This is all spring breakers from the north. But that doesn't mean that shutting down lanes of highway isn't inconvenient for, you know, for, right. for folks who live and there. And they're probably used to all the trash on the beach after they leave. <laughs> Tell me they don't leave solo cups. Uh, more Bottles. Right. I'm sure there are bottles down there. Sure. Anyway, um, not we're, we're not spending any time in Florida, but we are about to spend a little time in Omaha. Right. Um, Monica Bauer is a playwright that... Uh, has produced some shows at the Shelter Belt Theater that mm-hmm. I co-founded with some friends back in 1993. And she sent along her play called Vivian's Music 1969. Vivian Strong is a young woman that I only recently found out about, much to my chagrin. She was 14 years old, shot by a white officer for no reason. And that set off loads of unrest, you know, for several days Mm -hmm. in Omaha in 1969. The thing that really um, made me think about my background in Omaha is the difference in the histories between 
these two communities. So in the black community, they're being told about 1919, you know, um, when Will Brown was lynched in Omaha and left to hang there for three days. Mm -hmm. They hear that story. They hear uh, and they and they see, you know, police officers going up and down the street so slow that they could be walking instead. Um, in white neighborhoods, we didn't get those stories. And so later on, you can see where a, when a white person is presented with a story about systematic racism or white supremacy, the white person would go, I didn't see any of that. What are you talking about? Whereas the, you know, the black person coming up, that's all they get. And I was just a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know this little part of history. Because uh, if people think that racism and supremacy is something that doesn't happen in the Midwest, that doesn't happen in Omaha, then uh, this story is one shining example of just how much it happens everywhere. You know, one of the questions that I had for you earlier before we turn on the mics was, do women have as hard a time getting their work on the stage on the theater side of things as they do on the um, on the instrumental music, on the uh, classical, classical music mm -hmm. side of things? It seems like, no. It, it seems like the women have an easier time over on the theater side getting their works it performed. Does. At I least, mean, you say at least in your experience. Sure, at least from the Shelter Belt perspective, it was uh, a very, very broad mix. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've I've had probably just as many uh, women directing me in shows as I have men, and co-stars of you know that are anything but cisgender, you know. So it was a a real free for all for everybody to come and work at the Shelter Belt. As far as others, I'm sure that the stories are there. I'm mm -hmm. sure that there's stories of gatekeeping of people using their position to get favors in order for somebody's career to be forwarded. I'm sure that it's happened. I don't have any personal experience with it, though. Uh, do, do you know if there's a place where folks can... Uh, I, I have the, the Wikipedia of uh, the shooting of Vivian Strong. Uh, uh, you know, not that we're censuring the, the, the trauma of it, but if you want to learn more, you know, you can mm -hmm. just do that. How can they find uh, this, this play, this, this piece about Vivian Strong? Sure, it's called Vivian's Music 1969 and... If you or someone you know would be interested in mounting a production of Vivian's Music 1969, I can put you in touch with the publisher. You need to get a hold of the rights. Uh, Original Works Publishing. That's originalworksonline.com, where you can get more information about um, the, the play and maybe a production of it. Wouldn't that be awesome if somebody heard about it and put it up? Absolutely. And again, promoting work by women, work by black women, uh, about black about women. About black women. Black black women, uh, whose works you know again I, I only have the perspective of the music side of thing where we just don't see it. Mm -hmm. um, but even you know as you describe theater being a a slightly more equitable space, I think we need to keep it going. It's not it's not about doing it and then you know that's done. It's keeping it going. Mm -hmm. So let let's be a part of that in every way and uh, we can. Music was a central. Uh, piece of the play as well, obviously, because you know, you're know you in a jazz club. Mm -hmm. Luigi's a drummer. So in the stage notes, uh, Monica puts in that Dave Brubeck is to be used liberally. You know, uh, that's what she was thinking about. But one of the other pieces that comes up frequently for both Vivian and her mother, whenever they uh, need to get some time to themselves and relax a little bit, they listen to Satin Doll. Do
a composition, of course, by the late, great Duke Ellington, performed there by the late, great Ella Fitzgerald, Satin Doll. We, we don't have to have the conversation today of that being classical music, Duke Ellington, sure. and, and all that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. what a... What a beautiful, what a beautiful piece of music! What a beautiful piece of music! I, w- I wish we heard it more. I, I wish it were on more stages. Yeah, you, you know, know. Satin Doll is used quite a bit in TV and film. You know, that's mm-hmm. just sort of that universal jazz club esque sound. You know. All right. Well, we got. It's it's not all pretty here. So let's go ahead and round out <laughs> this first <laughs> movement with. With a doozy. Okay, I'm reading here from OperaWire.com. The uh, the headline is Tulsa Opera removes composer Daniel Romain from concert commemorating race massacre over one word. I'm getting fired up just reading the, the, I can tell. the headline. Let me um let me let me let me find a good spot. I'm just gonna read from the beginning here. It says in a follow up statement, Romain made. To OperaWire, Remain noted that he was hired to write a piece as part of the company's program. Now, this was a, a series of, of black um, written things and, and just the, the black things, mm-hmm. you know, Tulsa Opera's black things. He requested a librettist for the endeavor, but was told, quote, there wasn't support for that. It was suggested to Remain Does by that mean money? Right. Okay. It was suggested to Remain by composer Tobias Picker, Tulsa Opera's artistic director, that he locate a text or write his own. Because the deadline was so short, I decided to create my own text. This is uh, this is Remain. This is Daniel. Because the program was to mark the horrific Tulsa race massacre of 1921, I created a libretto that retold that story. I completed the work on time and then waited for a response. Okay, I'll let y'all read the rest of that. It's on um, uh, it's on the description of this. Uh, the issue were the last two lines of the 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 libretto Mm -hmm. it was god bless america followed by god damn america Mm -hmm. what's come out well first of all i'll start by saying this i was i was up on on the development of this because uh daniel was very open about it on social media so if you're connected with him on social media you saw what was going on he was naming tulsa he was he was saying what was going on this opera wire piece comes out and and the media kind of goes with it and this narrative of daniel versus one of their singers Denise denise graves came up and that's when i started to get upset because it just reminded me of this whole divide and conquer thing I, I, I sent you this story in advance what were some of your thoughts after you kind of you know got wind of what was happening well if you remember i forwarded it on to you and you wrote back yep we're gonna cover it oh, yeah. so oh, you know okay. I, th- yeah. I think that we both i think we both tripped over this at about the same yeah. time I, I was just i was reading daniel's uh facebook right you know and then you sent me this right that's that's where i first saw it as well too and i and the first thing that entered my mind was nobody's y- y'all y'all don't hear us <laughs> me uh, saying that y'all don't hear me that's what that's what i thought you saying yeah but at the same time i went okay there's there's not everybody has weighed in here yet so right. let's let's breathe and and i didn't try to you know i wasn't trying to go off uh off the deep end without hearing more and then denise gets mixed into it with uh tulsa coming out with a statement that basically said talk to denise how convenient is that wow how convenient is fucking that and i saw somebody on your timeline say look at him pitting two black people against yeah. one another. and i never thought about that direction 
But the first thing that I thought of was this is the Kobayashi Maru no-win situation once again, because what if it was Denise that was cut? Like if she wouldn't sing that line and they went, oh, okay, well, well, we're, we're going to find somebody who will sing it then. What, what, would the, what would the news, what would the timeline have looked like then, do you think? Let me, let me say this. I want to go back. My work over these past two, three months has intersected with opera in, a, in an interesting way. So I've been on a lot of calls and a lot of meetings with folks really entrenched in the world of opera. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see that any one musician could make a decision like that or be uh, put out to dry like that or, 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 or just to have a consequential role in that way. Mm. Let's quickly go back to theater. When we, when we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago, if a playwright is commissioning something and somebody in the, um, in the opera company is uncomfortable with this certain language or, or this scene or whatever, have you seen more of let's work together? Have you seen more of this is what I wrote, this is what it is? I know all of these things exist, but mm-hmm. what would you say is typical? Uh, well, I can tell you from the perspective of the shelter belt, it was a very workshop sort of environment. So if an actor had a problem, the director and the writer would all hash it out and we'd come up with a solution that everybody was satisfied with. I don't know of anybody getting cut uh, over something like that. Um, and that would have likely been the best course of action here, I think, to actually have some dialogue. It doesn't seem like the path was made clear for... Daniel and Denise to actually have those conversations yeah, so to, to actually work it out. Now I can I can understand a composer um, and full disclosure, we're recording this on Monday. I'm actually going to chat off the record with Daniel tomorrow morning. So mm. you know maybe I'll come back Good. next week with some things. But I can understand from a composer perspective, respect my work, respect what I wrote. You know, especially in light of what this is supposed to be about—the Tulsa race massacre. We've mm-hmm. talked about it on this podcast before. We've acknowledged how it's something that folks just recently learned about. You know, mm-hmm. myself included, in the past couple of years. So why are we soft shoeing around it? So I can I get the comp- the composer's perspective. Mm-hmm. I also, I mean, I've never been an opera singer, but I can see that there might be things that we don't know on her side. I'm 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 not going to throw her under the bus either yeah. because you know protect black women at all costs and you know we don't know all of the all of the details. I but I I have seen a lot of negative energy going both ways. Yeah. And I hate it because the energy should be going to Tulsa Opera. Mm. Are they not the ones in charge? Is this not the Opera House? Yeah, that 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 was that. That's my thing. And I, I hadn't thought of pitting two black people together because my attention was always on them. Mm-hmm. But it's very, again, it's very convenient how they were able to massage that. And now this is what we're talking about: Daniel versus Denise. And I was very reluctant to weigh in on this in any fashion, simply because I don't. Never, having never worked as a professional musician, I don't know what are in contracts. Are, do they write in clauses? I mean, again, uh, like, uh, like ways is different. Yeah, I okay. mean, I, I'm learning as so, well. Yeah, so that's why I'm really reluctant to, you know, I, I just do one of my dad moves and stand back and go, yeah, boy, you really, that, that's really a situation there. This is my thing. I feel like if uh, Tulsa Opera really wanted to put it on, really wanted to stage this 
black work and figure out a way to do it, they would have done that. Maybe that would have meant finding another singer. If Denise Graves didn't feel comfortable saying, God damn America, well, I mean, find, find, a, find a musician who does. I think that would have been the better course of action than to this. The black women who are in opera that I work with, you know, shout out to uh, Jamie and, and Zyda and, and Pam and all y'all, uh, Courtney, Alicia, Rayanne, you know, uh, many of the... Uh, Black women in opera that I have talked to said they would have they would love to say to get on stage and say America, goddamn. Mm. You know, I understand that there are black women, black people who don't feel comfortable with that. I think both perspectives are valid, but at the end of the day, Tulsa Opera missed an opportunity. If they, I mean, listen, if if they wanted that up there, it would have been. Mm. I think it is so irresponsible for them to have brought Denise Graves into this in any way. If y'all are gonna say that. It's not going to happen. Own up to that. Own up to say, okay, our opera company is not doing that. Throwing her out there has created this whole divide and conquer thing that has worked over and over and over across the generations. And unfortunately, I saw it working today. My timeline was ghetto. My timeline <laughs> oh, was no. pitiful with people trying to pit people together and, and taking sides. I hate it. Shame on you. Tulsa Opera, shame on you. Shame, shame, shame on you. I hate it. This is so triggering for me because I I, I believe in new music. I believe in, in getting works on the stage. I believe in keeping it trill. You know, I, I, I love an opera that will say, God damn America. Okay, so we can't have that, though. And the reason, as far as they are concerned, is the comfort of a singer, not what that opera company knows would be controversial to their white audience in a oh. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Scott, I, I used to get a lot of ugly emails. I, I still get them because there's a lot of haters out there. But a, one of the bad ones, one, one of the one of the white men who would really just push the envelope was in Tulsa. Oh. You know, so I I, under, I understand. I have a modicum of a perspective of what it looks like down there. Certainly, the people who are getting dressed up and going to opera. So I can understand why Miss Graves would not want to jeopardize her job and all of that. You know, we are all not like that. So some of us don't have any concern for that. Mm -hmm. I, I get it. Again, all, all perspectives are valid. I I just hate that this opportunity is is being missed. It's a it's a it's a goddamn shame. What if it wasn't in Tulsa? Somebody else mentioned that there's a certain uh, opera company in the Northeast that's looking for some good press. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know the Met isn't going to put goddamn America on Look, stage. Look, <laughs> all I'm saying, I'm, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help, and I, and it's not that wasn't even my idea. I I forget who said it on the timeline, but it was somebody else's idea that the Met is looking for a little bit of good press. Op Opera is going to have to grow up. We were we were talking about uh, the Grammys last week. Whatever I think it was on CBS, mm -hmm. they had. Wet ass, mm -mm. I know mm -hmm. Evan doesn't like that word. Uh, we they had wet ass meow on CBS last week. Okay, this fam, this allegedly family friendly thing, but they know what they have to do to really speak to what's hot and what people are actually listening to mm -hmm. and are engaging. Op opera needs to catch up. I mean, that that's not even controversial. You know, some of the the rhetoric I was seeing online is well, I can understand because the text is controversial. I guess we have to weigh our definitions of controversial now because oh, to damn. to me to me what should be controversial is doing anything that keeps the history of Tulsa under wraps or or not as highlighted oh. as it needs to be that's violent mm. that that that's the bad thing 
But anyway, you know, Nina Simone said it for us already. She she was talking about Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee and them, but really it's, it's America. So anyway, a little bit of Mississippi goddamn to get us into the second movement. Goddamn. I might have to listen back when this comes out on Wednesday, Scott, to see if I was making any sense in my little rant. But I, I get upset when I see that sort of obvious divide and conquer technique working. Mm. We, we, we should, not, mm. we should mm-hmm. not be talking about Denise Graves at all. We need to be talking about why the Tulsa Opera didn't do what they could to get that piece of music on there. But anyway, we're in the second movement now, striking a chord, talking about the music that moved us. In preparation, once again, Scott, for our chat with Rissy Palmer, uh, talking about so-called country music, classical intersection similarities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to put folks on folks' radar, the uh, the piece of music that I know we both know by Connie Elizor, Blackberry Winner. That's a good one. Well, what do you uh, what do you like about it? Is is there something that is novel about it? Honest about it? What what sort of flavors in it do you appreciate? The sound of the dulcimer. Um, Connie makes it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's the third movement that starts off with this. Down 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 down. Yeah, I'm scooting in my chair whenever I get to play that. <laughs> and the inspiration for that is a really beautiful story because we're having that where spring looks like it's got a hold and then you get some cold temperatures and another little bit of snow and ice that comes yeah. through. We've got one of those coming up in a couple days. The perfect time of the year to listen to this. Right, and she was talking about, you know, those berries will get wet and then the temperature drops and they're sort of encased. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that was one of the visuals that she gave that I think fits perfectly with the the, the weather that we're having this spring. A sort of nostalgia um, that's visual and aural, maybe even um, taste. If you if you try to eat those ice covered blackberries, I don't know. I, wow, you make the smoothie in your mouth. <laughs> I appreciated it uh, the first time I heard it because the dulcimer, the mountain dulcimer, was an instrument that I really didn't know much about. I know the first time I really heard some some mountain dulcimer playing that I was vibing with was, you know, Joni Mitchell's California, which I think we've talked about on this podcast before. Really, really, really beautiful uh, tune there if you don't know it. But uh, definitely look up Connie Elazor Blackberry Winter. It's a mountain dulcimer concerto. Um, really great piece of music with a with a really great um, aesthetic to it. I was telling you before we cut the mics on, when I was at NPR, I would um, put it onto my own playlist a lot mm-hmm. uh, to shout out, you know, Appalachia and all the folks listening down in East Tennessee. Yeah. You know, p- piece of music that I really think uh, speaks to uh, a real classic aesthetic of America. Here's a little bit of Connie Elizor's Blackberry Winter. That sort of aesthetic is something that I love, Scott, about the South. I know we don't talk, again, we don't talk about folk and country and all that stuff on here a lot, but there's something 
so charming mm-hmm. ab- about that sound that that I really vibe with. Doesn't mean that uh, the South is perfect though. South's got to change, as one as one artist once said. Right, uh, and and another you one. You love my segues. You love another them. one right here in this very <laughs> opus. Um, you asked me how I was doing. Okay, so how are you? I'm 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 Gucci. Okay, and you're you're uh, adapting, or you have adapted to the COVID. I'm all uh, the way sequestered in the house. way yes. of life. So you're doing you're doing fine go nowhere. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that you said it, it had to have been three or four opuses ago. Um, there are people out there who have made the most yeah. of this time, yeah. and are going to come out with some amazing releases. And I wanted to highlight Adia Victoria. Um, you asked me how I found her, and I think it's because we both follow Jason Isbell. But she's a guitarist and mm-hmm. vocalist that. Uh, I caught on to simply because on Twitter she said, "I'm using this time. I'm I'm putting together this album, and I I hope that I hope you all like it." But she comes out with this song called "South's Got to Change." learning as, as we've learned in preparation for this opus adia victoria is one of the many black women creating music in that aesthetic of blues country folk maybe even hillbilly there's a there's a group out there called ebony hillbillies one of the tunes that i learned from listening to rissy palmer's interview of darius rucker was a work of theirs called another man and gone it's a black lives matter branded tune with this country folk sort of hillbilly mm-hmm. aesthetic to it i i'm i'm learning every day because i would have I, I would have never thought to connect the idea of activist music black lives matter to anything that sounded anything close to that you know the, their right. the, their name alone the ebony hillbillies that sounds almost comical almost jokey almost like you're trying to you know uh uh shade somebody but it's it, it speaks to you know a history that is just forgotten uh, a history that we don't we don't shine a light on black women in country music mm-hmm. you know maybe weird. they were trying maybe they were trying to you know bounce off beverly hillbillies you know oh is, oh, is that what it was <laughs> that's the first thing that i thought of was like oh clever got it i mean even that you even, even that show beverly hillbillies i just the word hillbilly is one that i've always been a little shy to use because it just seems it doesn't seem pretty it's, it seems like i am saying an ugly word really because my dad refers to himself as a hillbilly all the time i'm yeah i'm very used to that word yeah well i come from hillbillies is, is that the white n-word <laughs> i don't the think H so word? <laughs> i don't think no, it's so. not you're right <laughs> i got in trouble in, for making that comparison no i got i got in trouble in graduate school once because i said that i didn't think that there was a slur as powerful as the n-word for a white person and you got in trouble with somebody they it it, it got cold in the room. It did. I, I don't, I'm not sure why, but to me, that word carries 
far more weight than anything that has come up to describe a, a white person, don't you think? We can. Well, I'm not going to list off the words. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I almost went there. Anyway, almost. Ebony Hillbillies. Um, another man done gone. Take a listen to this. Just an, an excerpt from this tune. Another man done gone. Now, of course, Scott, again, as we've been learning, there are so many black women, blackness in general, mm-hmm. in, in country music. Uh, but those connections aren't often made. You know, one of the things that we talk about with uh, Ms. Palmer is how Kenny Rogers is a lot of black folks' entry into country music. How so? Well, I, I was going to say, is that something that you had any sort of context on as far as connecting from the outside to country music? I mean, well, what is your, I'll ask this, what is your connection to Kenny Rogers? Because, and I'm asking you this, because when I heard the name Kenny Rogers, I, I had no idea who who that was. <laughs> but, or even when I heard uh, uh, Rissy talk about, again, in her uh, conversation with Darius Rucker, talk about the tune, The Gambler. I'm like, what is that? You yeah. know, I don't, but of course, when, when you get to hearing it, you know, you know it. So Kenny Rogers, uh, you know his music, obviously. We all know the music, but you, but you know his name. I mean, True. so, but you're not a jam. country fan or, or were you or? What, well, because, that? yeah, Kenny was, uh, one of those artists that could go on country, he could go on pop or oh, so he AM. Was on a lot of right. So he's okay. I got and, you. A lot of formats. And then as soon as you start going into karaoke, you're going to hear "Islands <laughs> in the Stream" two or True. three times a night. True. You know, True. with varying degrees of skill. I look. Um, right. And also, he he acted a little bit. You know. Oh, he, and well, I, I don't yeah, remember that. Well, I, I I think the show was called The Gambler. Oh, okay. It was either a made-for-TV movie or a. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Well, and the Muppet Show. Um, on the Muppet Show. Yeah, Kenny Rogers got some work. <laughs> See, you, you you're the Kenny Rogers expert. You got all the Kenny Rogers facts. Anyway, my so my connection to country was certainly by way of Kenny Rogers, but indirectly there was this tune that came out probably in the '90s when I was a kid called "Ghetto Superstar." It featured Maya yes, on the it hook, did. who we love. Um, that was, of course, a flip of Islands in the Stream. And the first time I heard Islands in the Stream, it sounded very weird to me because I knew this rap song. The more I got used to listening to Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton just get to work on that song, mm-hmm. masterpiece, masterpiece, definitely belonging in, in the American classical canon. So there we go. Rissy Palmer is right. Kenny Rogers is how many of us, especially black folks, have a connection to um, to country music. So to connect this second movement to the third movement, our conversation with Rissy Palmer, here's a little bit of Alice in the Street. Tender love is blind. It requires a dedication. All this love we feel needs no conversation. We ride it together.
sometimes I can bring in gospel and they'll get that. Sometimes it's Randy Travis. Like some people know I'm going to love you forever. Like they know that. And then some people know Friends in Low Places from Garth mm-hmm. Brooks. Like you can play that and a bunch of black people hanging all on my root. Yeah. And so it just depends on who I'm talking to and kind of what their perspective is. But I find that most times, especially when it's people of my generation, like I'm 39. And so most people within my box um, know Kenny Rogers and they know those songs and they know the Lionel Richie stuff and like all that kind of. So those two people in tandem are a really good entry point. I noticed that you, um, like me, have been featured on Fox Soul on the show Book of Sean. And, you know, my thing, I'm always so excited to get the Black invitation to yes. tell us about our things. Do, do you get many of those uh, uh, cookout invites, I'll say? Um, <laughs> you know what's funny? It's so, yes, the cookout. Yeah, um, I did early on, like in the very beginning of my career, um, like I was featured in Vibe, and that was oh, wow. such a big deal to me. And like such, I can't tell, I'm still proud of it to this day. Like I said, it was 13 years ago and I still talk about it. And being in Jet and Ebony Mm -hmm. and Darius and I talked about that. Like that's a big deal for black people, especially black people of a certain age. Like if you grew up with those things on your coffee table, that makes you feel like, oh, you famous, like you Jet famous. (laughs) Yeah. And so... Yeah, I'm starting to get more like as as we in this iteration of my life, I'm starting to get more like the conversation that I had with Darius um, hit a couple of black outlets. I think BET.com covered it. And then the interview that I did with Mickey Guyton um, got covered in essence, which was a really big deal for both of us. And, you know, I'm trying It's hard because I think a lot of times people think, number one, that you don't want to be on those things. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be a part of that, which is completely asinine. But like, I think because of the songs, because I mean, I'm sorry, because of the music and because of the implied feelings that country music brings up, like it is, it's a loaded topic in that way. And so I think a lot of black outlets feel like, well, our readers don't care about that. Or they're not, or you, I don't know that we'll, I don't know that you'll relate or something like that. And like, little do they know, you know, we're black people too. Like we want to (laughs) be, we want to (laughs) come. Yeah. So it's starting to happen more. I'm I'm scrolling through and and this shows how inexperienced I am with country. I'm scrolling through my notes here to um to find one person's name. Maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. There's this black country singer out there, Kane Brown. That's his yes. name. Okay. So mm-hmm. when we talk about, you know, coming into those black spaces, you know, and being featured on those platforms, we had Kane Brown at the BET Awards. We also mm-hmm. had Lil Nas X at the BET Awards, right. you know, and we gravitated to one of those way more. I mean, what, yes. can, can, can you speak to the challenges once you entered those spaces? Because those are two different aesthetics, two aesthetics that I feel uh, comfortable <laughs> affirming as country. But one just yes. feels a little bit more black at the end of the day. Yes. Um, I think that I totally forgot about that, by the way. Thank you for reminding me about <laughs> that, um, that he was on there. But, I first heard of Kane Brown, by the way, on a Macy's Day parade. 
Yes. And, and uh-huh. that, that was my first, maybe back in 2017, 2018. And, and I had no idea that we were doing country. And then, you know, of course, to see him on <laughs> the like, BET oh, okay. award stage. And, but but yeah. again, you know, there's, there's still challenges getting right. to those spaces because we don't gravitate to it, even if we're amongst ourselves. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that I feel like is a chicken and an egg Mm. type of situation. Because country music does not court a black audience specifically, like they don't do anything to entice or include, like they're just thinking their core. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to kind of be within the orbit of that core, then you catch it. But they're not specifically reaching out to like there hasn't been any specific marketing of Kane, of Mickey, of Jimmy, of Darius that I know of and that they know of either. Mm -hmm. And so, like based on conversations that I've had with them. Now, mind you, I've never spoken to Kane, but in conversations that I've had with other people, with those other artists, nobody knows of any special marketing that's been done to market them to black people. So. On one hand, you can't necessarily expect for black people to be jumping up and down and super excited about Kane Brown when Kane Brown has never been directed towards them. Mm -hmm. Like, this is for you or this is you're a part of this as well. Like, you're welcome to this, too. And whereas with Lil Nas X, like it's hip hop um, and hip. He came from a mostly black groundswell. Right. And so, yeah, like that definitely feels more, um, I don't know, like more native or more um, inclusive than just who is this? Who is this boy coming here and singing the song? Okay, yeah. all right, country. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like how we tend to do. We're like, all right, we do country too. That's great. But like, it doesn't necessarily feel like something that you're being welcomed into. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I mean, uh, quite honestly, that was the impetus of my show. Like, that was the reason why I created Color Me Country for that exact reason. Yeah. And Color Me Country is is just educating us beyond what I would have ever expected. You you talked about, you know, you use the phrase chicken and egg, and that makes me think about that term classical that we use all the time. Mm-hmm. So I spent some time thinking about classic country or classical country. And thanks to your content, I was introduced for the very first time to the name Linda Martell. I'm yes. sure there are a lot of people, maybe even most people listening here that have never heard that name. Who was Linda Martell? So Linda Martell, we we lovingly say is the patron saint of the show. Um, I named the show after her first album, which came out in 1970, called Color Me Country. And to this day, Linda Martell is the only black woman to reach the 20s on the Billboard country chart. She is the highest charting black woman ever. And she was put out by Plantation Records and... <laughs> was um, she was supposed to be the counterpart to Charlie Pride. Mm -hmm. And so they came out at the same time. She put out her first single, which was Color Him Father. And um, then she came out with Bad Case of the Blues and charted both of them and and did really well. Like she was on Hee Haw. She was on the Porter Wag. Like all the shows that were happening at that time, she was a part of. And she was also the first black woman on the Grand Ole Opry to perform. And unfortunately, because of a lot of behind the scenes bull and and that sort of thing, I mean, which is the story for a lot of us, um, she was blacklisted. 
she was shelved and then she was blacklisted and decided to just quit the business altogether and left in, I believe, 1972, 73, something like that, left and now lives in South Carolina and, you know, is living a relatively quiet life. And, um, you know, I hear her story and it's a lot like my story. And thank God I had resources and I had, you know, it's just a different time. 2007, 2008, 2009 is a very different proposition than 1968, 1970, mm-hmm. 1971. So it didn't have to, it didn't end for me. Whereas for her, that was it. Like if you don't have any money, if you don't have any backing, that's the end. So yeah, Linda, she just had the one album and um, she, I just believe that she deserves so much more attention and and thought and thanks than she ever got at the time. And so I've kind of made it my personal mission to make sure that people know who she is and that she receives the flowers while she can still smell them. What you're making me think of is the trope of the woman composer, the woman rapper, the woman country artist, country singer. In all of those, well, in the composer and rapper categories, you know, I can definitely speak to how, um, you know, the patriarchy just quelled a lot of really incredible art from making it to the mainstream. When I think about women country artists, you know, I see Dolly Parton as not only a great example of, you know, women in country, but just country in general, as someone far outside of, of that tradition. You know, hers is a name that I know. So it, mm-hmm. I, I can't help but to think that within the the barriers of country music, the intersection of race and gender has to be so uh, uh, compounded. Yeah, it's, I mean, cause it's well documented. And the thing is, is like, I'm, I'm, what I'm grateful for is that there are numbers to back up everything that I am saying that is happening right now. Um, country music already has a female problem, a woman problem, mm. whatever you want to call it. And that's been well documented with, um, like tomato gate is what it was. And this happened about 10 years ago now. And it was where a radio, a very prominent radio programmer said like unironically, he was like, well, if men are the salad of country music of country radio, then women are the tomatoes and they're just sprinkled Mm. about. (laughs) And so if, if that's the case, if so, if we're going to use the salad analogy, then black women are like, are like the little bit like if you if you decide to pepper your salad then we're like the two little cranks that you do on right. the, on the pepper grinder and then that's it and black men tend to be like the one or two croutons that you throw on there mm-hmm. and then that's the that's it and so yeah she it's a it's a it's a rough like if 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 artists of color period have a hard time then Black people, black men have a little bit of an easier time, but black women, it's been, it's abysmal. I believe that we are 0.06 based on Jada Watt, Dr. Jada Watson's last um, bit of research. I believe that we are 0.06% of the music that is played on country radio in the last 20 years. So... 
And I may be wrong and I'm going to look on my phone real quick while we're talking to make sure that I have the number right. But it's it's a number like that. In fact, she had to combine BIPOC, like everybody, like there mm-hmm. had to be Latinx, there had to be indigenous, <laughs> there had to be LGBTQ. <laughs> yeah, just to even get the number above one. So it's a there's a problem. It's not that we don't sing country. It's not that we can't sing. It's not that we don't write. Like there is a problem. It that's a problem. Like if I were to see that and 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 that's a problem. So when it comes to propagating these issues on the classical side, we talk about the music education programs based uh, onto the what the conservatories are teaching, onto what uh, the orchestras are maintaining, and then to a degree what the radio stations are doing. What are what are the institutions beyond country radio that are are standing in the way? Are there are there schools of music? Are there what 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 are the institutions? I think there's a lot of things, and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. I'm glad you bring that up. I think a big thing is that this whole country music. So when you think of country music and you think of country music songwriting, it's like this very storied kind of mythological idea. And because the music business is already like that to people that aren't involved. And so add to that like this mythos of like the the country song you go into music row and you write these songs as a group and then you know you come out with i will always love you or mm-hmm. like something like that and so a lot of people don't even know how to get in to even do the co-write or like how do how do you even break in to write these songs and so how do you get in to get these songs produced because there is a Nashville sound there is a sound there is There's instrumentation that's particular. And like, if you don't have access to people to teach you these things, or if you don't have access to writers, or if you don't have access to the producers, if you don't have access to like all these things that I think a lot of people take for granted when they are in the Nashville system, then no, you're not going to get a whole bunch of artists that have these great songs like I, you know, I'm starting to get a lot more songs now. People send me things and that sort of thing. I hear a lot of really raw talent. Mm-hmm. I just I hear things that need to be refined and that need like just that little bit of guidance and that little bit of thing. And so I think artist development is really the biggest thing. And the fact that record companies don't really do that anymore. So you're already at a disadvantage if you're coming from Chicago And, you know, there's no there's not a a, a large group of country. You know what I mean? Like there's Mm -hmm. not this. I'm I'm just using Chicago as an like this is a random city name. But you come. I mean, yeah, if you're coming from Chicago or something like that and and you're trying to do this and you're trying to emulate what you hear on country radio or what you hear in records, but you don't necessarily know what the secret sauce is then you're already at a disadvantage when you send your things to A&R or when you try to present yourself and they're like, this isn't real or this isn't authentic and that sort of thing. So for me, I think it's, it's trying to bridge the gap of like the achievement gap, so to speak. I guess we're speaking sort of in terms of like education and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think that it's bridging the gaps of those things, like making sure that kids know, kids of color, especially like we have a history in violin and playing the fiddle Mm -hmm. like all the string bands in the very beginning were black they were all black and a lot of the white string bands were copying what they saw at dances at barn dances and things like that and singing down to singing our songs 
down to putting blackface on to emulate what they were seeing down south. So like we have a stake in this that's so much bigger than just Charlie Pride or just Mickey Guyton. And once we teach them that and once we make these things accessible, like we make the co-write accessible, we make the production accessible, I think then you're going to see the tide turn. And where I think there is a, a big overlap when, you know, the way Scott and I really challenge that phrase classical music, if we affirm the Negro spiritual as, you know, America's classical music, you know, aside from what was codified from indigenous people, I think we have to really consider everything that grew from that. And, you know, you're it's obvious to me, based on what you're saying, that so-called country music, you know, what, what we call country music is that it's very much a uh, a, a black art form. But, you know, o- o- over the years, it's, it's just it's become something else. I mean, and Scott, I want to I want to bring you in because one of the things that I I have heard um, from a broader perspective when it comes to um, an apprehension surrounding uh, country music is a class issue. I've seen the argument from white (laughs) folks that, you know, country music is a little lower class. I certainly do not affirm that. I'm just saying that's an an argument that uh, that I've seen. Scott, I wonder, you know, if you can speak to your experience in country. Is that an issue? You you knew the name Charlie Pride. You know, you said that name to me, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. Sure. And think about the work that Ray Charles did. You know, he he had an orchestra back there. And, you know, uh, I was going to, yeah, Reese's putting her hands up. (laughs) So um, um, a lot of the artists had had huge bands. That was a a sound of of the 70s. So I came up on it. And the suburb that I was living in was maybe a 30-minute drive from rural America. Try telling some of those guys that the banjo was... Uh, based on an African instrument. <laughs> right, right. right. Ooh. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think that when you look at an artist, there's a tendency to try to put them in a box mm-hmm. to categorize, right? And, you know, um, Darius Rucker and uh, Cracked Rear View, wasn't that the name of his? Yeah, Hootie, uh, yeah the, that was the Hootie and the Blowfish Hootie and the record. Blowfish, um, To me, that was pop, right? And I I think that there's a tendency for people to categorize based on what you see rather than what you hear. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Like, Scott, you hit, like, one of the biggest things because then you get into this whole authenticity conversation. Right. And it's like... What's what is authentic and what's not authentic is based on, like, these, these really fake credentials that... You know, the 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 mark gets moved the more you like the artist. Like, for example, you know, I've heard that, well, you know, you were born in Pennsylvania and you grew up in Missouri. And so, like, how Southern are you? And it's like, well, Keith Urban is <laughs> Keith Urban is from Australia. And Shania, T- Shania Twain is from Canada. So right. come again. And so it's just like the goalpost is moved based on whatever it is. The point is that we need to prove or whoever we need to keep out. Yeah. Yeah. Or whoever we have to let in. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot there. Uh, I want (laughs) to I want to transition. There there are two more little mini conversations that that I want to have under this umbrella. The first of them is the idea of the politics surrounding country music. So I'll I'll contextualize it this way. When we talk about classical radio, um, orchestral performance, 
most of those people are your so-called liberals, your folks that are open to new things and, um, mm-hmm. and, and progressive, at least relatively speaking. But still, you know, on top of that, there are the, the, uh, the race issues that just continue to, you know, keep classical music in the past. When it comes to country music, to me, it seems like that issue is even bigger because I'll say it. It seems like there are a lot of people on the right over there listening to country music. I mean, how do you how do you deal with the conversation of social and uh, social politics, um, government politics and everything else as it relates to country radio, country performance? There has to be an implication behind playing a black country tune, you know, uh, during an an election season. I'll even I'll even get specific. (laughs) You brought me on to a tune again. I, I learned so much from listening to your show. Let me let me pull this. Uh, Thank you. Let me pull this screenshot up real quick. Um, right, the Ebony Hillbillies, another man done yes. gone. Okay. Yes. That is very that is very much a country song. Yes, it and is. There, you cannot deny that. If you put that on country radio, even today, you know, we're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial going on. There is an implication, you know. So, oh, yes. uh, so again, can you speak to, you know, the way that the, our social politics, how the general discourse uh, parlays in, you know, black folks in country? How do we get our music on the radio, et cetera? Well, first of all, um, that Ebony Hillbilly song, like, no, that has never been played. <laughs> I think I I think me playing it is probably the first time that it's ever been played on broadcast. So there are tried and true yeah. country fans that do not know that song or do not know that. Wow. Yes, there are wow. black people and white people that don't know them or the music. Like it's it's a it's a sin and a shame. Um, they're fantastic, oh, yeah. by the way. If you want to get yeah, um, Lord, so many things. Let's see, where do we begin? Um, well, so the whole pivot to conservative politics that happened like seven, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Reagan really drove the nail in the coffin, though. And Amanda Martinez wrote a really great paper if you ever want to get like super, super in-depth mm-hmm. and figure out why it happened. But country music has been running from this whole hillbilly idea for since the 50s. Because back in the 20s, when they broke up the music and they made race music for black people, and then they made hillbilly music for rural mm-hmm. white people. Country music has been running from that image ever since. And mm. so when they made their alliance with conservative politics and quote unquote, the Patriots or the, the real Americans or, you know, um, making America great again, then they kind of sealed their fate in that that's the way we go. And like, that's who we attract and that's what we're doing. So all the patriotic songs and, um, you know, and, 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 and shunning the chicks for saying that they're ashamed of the president and, mm-hmm. and, and canceling effectively a canceling them. Oh, I like about everybody that, yeah. talks about, Oh, they did yeah. that too. Sweet. Too oh, sweet. Exactly. And the thing that makes me, and this is a complete sidebar, but the thing that makes me laugh is everybody's now complaining about cancel culture. And it's like, no, no, Bleh. the chicks got canceled. Like, if you want to talk about that was a canceling. Like this other stuff is like consequences. Mm-hmm. That, my friends, was a canceling. But anyway, it is a very, it makes it really hard. It makes it hard. I remember when, 
um, 2008, when I was on radio tour for my second single, um, Barack Obama was running for the presidency. And I was, I performed at the DNC and I performed at fundraisers and I made it very plain who I was supporting. And I remember my record company being just like, just <laughs> so just like, can you just not talk about this when you go <laughs> to the radio stations? Can you stop? Like, I get it. You're excited. But like, can you maybe not post so much on Facebook about this or post so much on Twitter about it? And yeah, it, I mean, like it's tab the fact that like Maren Morris came out and spoke and said that she was backing Biden. And the fact that Garth Brooks was performing at the inauguration and that was like a huge deal and like a big deal and it makes people angry. So, yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's they've they've they're at a crossroads. I think country music is at a crossroads right now because with everything that's going on, everything that's happened in the world and there's two paths you can go on. You can become more inclusive or you could double down. And go this other way and and basically, I think, kill yourself, like right. kill the genre like you're it's going to because things that aren't growing are dying. And so there's two paths. And I see a lot of the institutions that are a part of country music grasping onto that idea. Radio is the last bastion for that. Mm. It just is. Because country music, unlike every other type of music, with the exception of classical, I guess, and I don't even know how strong what what a stronghold that radio has on classical music, but country just has a stronghold because of who the demographic is and where most of these people are located and all of that. They may not necessarily have access to Spotify or Apple or whatever, mm -hmm. but they have access to the radio, to FM radio. So until we figure that out, until that changes, country music is the beginning and ending. Country music, country music radio, and the industry, meaning record companies, mm -hmm. who they're signing, who they're putting their money behind, who they're backing. The, and the buck stops there. And yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do, like as far <laughs> as this politics thing, because it's just like... You know, like the cute little black squares that everybody put up right. this summer to say that they, but like in the same breath, there were people, major prominent artists who were praising the the Patriots on January 6th, mm -hmm. like publicly. So yeah, you've got an identity crisis because those two things don't live in the same house. You've, you've beautifully led me into the final point I wanted to make, the final point of discussion I wanted to bring up. You talk about radio sort of being the uh, the tastemaker to an extent mm -hmm. when it comes to country music. I think that's interesting because um, in hip hop, I'll, I'll, I'll speak from the hip hop perspective, you do not need to ever turn on your radio to know who's hot, to know what to listen to, to know right. what, 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 to, what to go to. I think about that when it comes to classical radio because um, th that industry is not quite 
there yet when it comes to its integration with social media and 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 other means of of, of spreading the content the the radio is the thing it's also what's lagging the furthest behind from from my perspective when i think about black introduction um, and integration in country music, and especially when I think about your show, I think about ownership of that content. Me and Scott get on the the, the ownership uh, conversation all the time. It's obvious that this thing that we're calling country music is black. It's obvious that it's the black people within that infrastructure that are going to put in the legwork, put in the industry of really making sure folks on the outside like me understand that it exists. I feel like we struggle because you know, the platforms, the the big platforms don't want to alienate their white audiences. I think we get mm-hmm. dog whistles like core listener or our base, mm-hmm. but that's 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 really what it is. So when it comes to spreading, you know, what you're doing uh to more people, you know, creating content, where do where do you think is the the next place? Your show is on Apple Music. I love how you can play whole songs. I guess there's a a a, a yes. deal with with Apple you have, but well, it's because it's because we're radio, right? Right. <laughs> That's what they're calling. So because we're radio and not a podcast. Oh, yeah. I see. But, but see, even then, I struggle. I mean, I think about Triloquy, and it would be really hard for me to let Apple have some of that. Like, I, I just, I just feel yeah. like it's ours. So I, I wonder if you can speak to you know having to work one foot outside, one foot inside, for the sake of the folks who are outside. Well, I will say this. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to speak kindly about about my bosses because <laughs> I have probably one of the most artist friendly deals that I've ever been in in my entire life. And like I'll just let you I like I own the name of the show. And so if I ever decide that I want to do something else with it, like I'm free to do that. Um yeah, I mean, okay. So <laughs> the question of ownership, Lord Jesus, like that is like <laughs> That is the story of every black artist that has ever artisted. Um, (laughs) I think that um, it's a it's a tough it's a thought because it's like I've been there. Like you can't find my first album anywhere on the Internet right now because of ownership issues with my first record label. So I I know something about ownership, but. I think that if you find a benevolent partnership, then that makes it um, that makes it easier. That makes it possible. That makes it um, a little less like you're chained and doing this thing. Um, I don't want to get like far off from what you were talking. Like, I think I don't know. Like, it's. <clears throat> It's a re- that's a really great question because like I, yes I think that you can make a lot happen outside of the machine mm-hmm. so to speak I mean like that's what I've been trying to do for like the last thirteen years is like work outside of the machine to make a lot of these things possible but yeah it's a whole hell of a lot easier when you have the support of um of the machine. Mm-hmm to um to do it and especially if you're not doing it the way that it's traditionally done like some of the conversations that I have on the show some of the things that we talk about some of the things that we say on the show I cannot imagine a traditional um platform ever letting me get right. <laughs> get mm-hmm. away right. with mm-hmm. like I couldn't be I couldn't be on regular terrestrial radio like so 
why are you not letting the black people in? Like, I couldn't do that. <laughs> or like, we just going to have a whole where we just going to name names and just and speak to the, the, rate, the, the heads of these record labels for filth. But like, I get to do it because, again, even though it's a machine, it's an outside machine. So we can still, you know, we can still talk our stuff. But I don't know. There's something to be said for having a seat at the table. There's also something to be said for making your own table and inviting them to come sit with you. And I'm a fan of the latter, the latter. Like I had already created the show and then Apple was like, hey, we really love this. Can we amplify what you're doing? And I'm like, hell yes. And so, yeah, it changed the format of what I'm doing. I could, like you said, I can play full songs mm-hmm. now. It changed who I can have on the show because my reach just got a lot longer mm-hmm. and a lot farther. And it changed who's listening to the show. So... Would I have been able to accomplish a lot of that on my own? Some of it, but not all of it. And I recognize that. And so, yeah, I think there just has to be a really good straddle job going on. Like you have to be able to 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 straddle the fence, so to speak. Like you have to be able to. Yeah. So this little renaissance that's happening right now, I call it a renaissance. This little renaissance that's happening with black artists, especially black female artists, is based on that Mm -hmm. It is entirely that Mm. and these are women that have half a million streams of songs on their own Mm -hmm. like are literally doing this from their apartments or you know wherever they are with a minimal team like there may be a manager probably not and there may be some team but like most likely not and they're creating all this buzz and this um, and this, you know, like fandom and getting on these playlists and, and like Spotify is putting them on editorial lists and Apple is putting them on editorial lists. And country fans like the core country fan is still like who? Yeah. And so it has happened. It happens for white artists. Like that's that's Casey Musgrave's entire career because hmm. she exists almost in, entirely outside of country radio and like artists like Brandy Clark. And I'm trying to think of some like there's there's lots of examples of this. But like, I mean, Kane Brown for a second. Mm-hmm. That's how he existed was completely online was YouTube and SoundCloud and then Spotify and, and Apple. So. I think until there are major changes, like we're talking infrastructure changes again, because I think it has a lot to do with the demographic. And Mm -hmm. so if you don't have access to all these things, then no, you have absolutely no clue who these people are. And I don't know that it'll happen. Like, because again, Casey Musgraves is a beautiful white woman. And she's friends, like she went on tour with Katy Perry. So there's like a whole other group, massive group of people that know who Katy Perry is because of who Katy Perry's friends are and like what her access is. Whereas like Britney Spencer, one of the artists that's been on my show or Sasha or Karen McCormick, 
exist only to those that are listening to streaming mm-hmm. or that are paying attention to like some of the digital things that they've been involved in or that sort of thing. So there would have to be some major infrastructure sh- changes in order for mm-hmm. that to happen because mm-hmm. country doesn't exist in streaming like that. Yeah. Oh my. Like they haven't had a superstar <clears throat> like that. Yeah. You know, every time you you talk, I think of eight more things that I want to ask. <laughs> we, we 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 need to uh, uh, start to put a button on it. But 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 the final thing that you know I, I want to explore based on what you just said. So um, we talk about you know these aspirations and and being on these platforms. I've gotten to the point in my career and my life when you know I'm not I'm not thirsting over the Grammy or the Emmy. I cannot wait for the day I'm nominated for a BET award, you know. But when it comes to classical music, you know, those those spaces and, and it seems like those pathways don't quite quite exist. Same for same for country. You know, for the black country artists, what is there for them to aspire to that is not the Grand Ole Opry, you know, that is something that is black and and centers the black perspective on that art form. Does it exist? Oof. I think you just said it. I, I think I don't know any black artists that I've spoken to that wouldn't love to get an NAACP right. award or wouldn't love to get a BET award or wouldn't love like one of my goals is I would love to have a stage at Essence Fest. Mm. And I would love for us to do like every night, like bring the Bluebird round style show to a stage at Essence Fest and just have everybody with their guitars and an all black house band and like do it and like really, really do it. And like us have kind of like a, a, a black, I don't want to say hoedown, but like <laughs> but have, <laughs> the black hoedown. <laughs> but you know, like have us, <laughs> but you know, have a bunch of black, have a bunch of black women doing the electric slide to, you know, some of these up tempo country songs. Cause like the, I, because the culture would, has line dancing already. Right. <laughs> You can Cupid shuffle to this stuff. Yes. Like you can do it. So it would it would make I don't think there would be anything that would make any of us happier than to be on the cover of Essence magazine or to be invited to BET or to you know what I'm saying? Like to do any of these things. And yeah, I think that's, you know, to be at the Trumpet Awards, yeah. like any, like all of it. Like we want to be, we want to be there. I can't wait to have you back because there are many, many, many <laughs> other things for us to to touch oh, on. Yes. How can, how can folks um, buy your things, check out Color Me Country and learn more about you? Well, you can go to colormecountry.com. And that has a link directly to the show page. But the show is every other week. On Sundays from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, like, yeah. And and you can find it on Apple Music. You go to Apple Music and click on the link. And anytime that the show is live, then I put that in air quotes. Yeah. Anytime that the show is on the schedule, then the show is free. You can listen for free. You don't have to have a subscription. It's only subscription-based if you want to listen on demand. Um, you can also go to colormecountry.com to find the Color Me Country Artist Grant, which I started in December for Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, whatever mm-hmm. artists that are perform that are are pursuing careers in country music. 
Um, we've raised almost $15,000 in the past three months and given it to 15 different artists. So, um, yeah, so you can give to that or you can see who we've helped. And for me, you can find me at ReesePalmerMusic.com. Great. We'll have all of that in the, in the description. As someone who works in radio, uh, I thought that uh, you could take us out with a break for your song, Seeds. I listened to it again oh. this morning and fell in love all over again. How about you, uh, Thank get, give, you. Us, give us our intro into Seeds as we uh, transition out? Well, y'all, this is my song. I'm Reese Palmer. I am so, I can't even tell you how excited I am to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Garrett and Scott. This is my song from my latest album, Revival Seeds. Scott, my mind is blown. I'm sure there are folks out there who could not imagine a black opera singer. I couldn't imagine black women in country mm. until having gone through this research and listening to this music and Same. these conversations. Yeah, so huge, huge shout out to uh, Rissy Palmer. You know, a, another, you know, a, alongside what I've learned about the black women in this so-called country and how we can connect that conversation with, with classical, my view of Darius Rucker. Mm. Is, is different. You know, I used to uh, joke and call him Hootie. <laughs> but I have so much, I have a more human context of who he is and what the music represents and its context. I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring his catalog now as well. It's interesting how that one entry can open you up to so many things that they don't teach in school. You don't hear on the radio, et cetera. I think that Cracked Review and the, the sheer amount that it got played might have ruined it for Darius, you know, his mm, country career. I see what you're saying. You know, yeah. that, that you just commonly associate him with uh, Hootie and the Blowfish and that release cracked rear view. Maybe that stunted his country growth, you know, professionally. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, we celebrate him anyway. Mm -hmm. we, we celebrate our black men and we definitely celebrate all of our women, our black women. Um, so shout out to Rissy Palmer. Huge thanks to her once again for uh, coming on Triloquy. I'll have information about her Apple Music show in the description of this opus. Be sure to go over there and support black women blazing a trail in country music. All right, let's blaze a trail into this final movement. We're at that point in our, in, in our history, in our lives, where you got to say something. You can't just stay on the sidelines anymore. All right, Scott, two quick things for me this week. Right. Um, first of all, I'm actually bringing an article into uh, this week's Triloquy. I'm reading here from the Boston Globe, uh, a work by AZ Madonna titled The Era of Genius Worship Must End with James Levine. Mm -hmm. I forget if we talked about this at all last week or, or whatever, but long story short, James Levine um, died not too long ago, was acclaimed as um, a star conductor in the world of opera, and at the same time was sexually assaulting boys and uh, being covered for by different individuals and different institutions and organizations. When he was alive, Scott, what was your approach to his recordings? 
Just but before like before this came out, before this came out, not even in the news, just, you know, a year and a half ago, you see a James Levine recording. What's your how do you deal with it? How did you deal with uh, it? You're in, we're going to have to go back further. Sure. Um, when this was before he had retired and everything, um, the story du jour was his back. And it was a big deal that he conducted from uh, a motorized chair on the podium. They had a special mm-hmm. chair. But, so I talked about that, but um, I didn't. I don't think that any of that other stuff had broken yet. You know, the, the, um, uh, any of the um, assault or the inappropriate behavior, I don't think that had hit yet. And frankly, I don't remember his recordings coming across all that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, m- maybe that work was was already being done. Mm. Um, I, I always stayed away from it. Did you? Uh, if, if I had to air a Levine recording, I did not name him. Uh, I, yeah. I just I just yeah. talked about the orchestra or or whatever. Um, people are letting all of that get in the way. I think when it comes to his legacy <clears throat> as a human being, when I say let that get in the way, I'm talking about all of those so-called genius things that he did that folks are foregrounding um, and not censuring the assault that he was he was guilty of. I'm just going to I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, I'll, I'll have it in the description. The saying goes that one shouldn't speak ill of the dead. If that is true, I should say nothing about the late James Levine. And there are probably many who think I should do just that. But in the case of the Metropolitan Opera and Boston Symphony Orchestra's defrocked former high priest, I believe speaking ill of the dead is not just justified, but necessary. Mm. I think that's an important part of this conversation, that there are certain things that a person cannot and should not be forgiven for. You know, I'm not going to put my business out there. What I am going to say is that as a victim of sexual assault, I was disgusted by the finch straddling that I was seeing on my timeline and across the the airwaves, across the discourse, with the justification being we don't speak ill of the dead or the justification of, but he created such great recordings. I mean, how how can we how can we um, sideline all the musicians who are involved in and X Y and Z? Moving forward now, what will be your response to those recordings? I would if if and, yeah. and of course you you likely will not see them. No, but but, no. but if you did, if you did, wow, that's a great question. I know that I wouldn't name him. Mm-hmm. I, I just feel like if I didn't address it some way that I would be missing an opportunity. There's that, uh, com- but, yeah. If, but that, is, go ahead. I, I don't know if that's, I don't know. I don't know. What were you going to say? Give me, give me some time to think and you can retort. What, well, I was, I was going to say that, we can have the conversation of we have to say something that missed opportunity or there are a kajillion other recordings of a kajillion other things featuring a kajillion other conductors who have not committed sexual assault. I was going to say you could talk about the music in another orchestra that doesn't have a predator on staff or something like that. Um, I, if, if it just came across, I would just not name him or find something different. What do you think about this concept of again the headline of this is the era of genius worship must end with james levine what do you think are the the lasting things that will come from this is it going to come to the point where it doesn't matter how great a person's 
art is, if they're problematic, we throw them away? Do you think mm. we're moving toward that? Mm. Uh, I think it provides a good example of what what could happen if you behave this way, of how you can get so high and then fall from that grace. And mm-hmm. people people love to watch that sort of thing but fall, the, right? But, and, and I'll also note that what I'm seeing a lot of people say is it's not a fall from grace after having lived this benevolent life along the path. Mm. This was happening. Mm-hmm. And the hush-hush of it was the principal contributor in his ra- his, 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 his coming to fame. So it's, it's not, I, I hate to even think of it as, you know, a fall from grace because you were never there. You were never grace. You know, that was never the thing. That was, that was never what surrounded you. So I did see somebody, I did see somebody put it together rather succinctly online. They said that Levine was not a genius um, conductor with a fatal flaw. He was a terrible, terrible person with one singular talent. There, there we are. So, anyway, no, no need to 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 really beat the dead horse. Maybe mm. pun intended. I don't know. Uh, but I just wanted to make it a hundred percent clear and state that for me and and for the Triloquy podcast, fuck James Levine, fuck his legacy. Those recordings are dead to me, right. as is he. Full stop, period. Okay. Final thing. So we have the tragedy of the uh, salon down in Atlanta and, you know... Salons. Salons and, you know, the the yellow squares and the and the hashtags and, and everything that's been going on with, with Asian hate mm-hmm. across the country, you know, that, that there's historic precedent for. Um, first and foremost, I'll say... You know, I'm sending all of my chants and respects and warm thoughts to the family of Xiao Jie Tan, I believe her name is. I know they called her Emily mm. um, down there, the owner of, of one of the salons um, where, where, where those victims were. Of course, Scott, with tragedy comes different conversation and different rehashings of things. And as I watched this news unfold... I started to see headlines that made somebody other than the white man and the white culture that made him possible. I saw that energy being pointed toward black folks. Headlines talking about what black people need to do to do better toward Asian people. You know, I was invited to give a talk on a panel about it that I had to turn down. When I turned on CNN, all I saw were images of black people harming Asians. How quickly, Scott, we pivot. How quickly we don't see the divide and conquer thing. We were talking about that with with, uh, Tulsa and and Daniel Romain Mm -hmm. earlier. I see that here, and I was triggered. I did not like that people were trying to pin black folks to blame for Asian hate. Now, I'm not saying that there has not been black folks perpetuating this because there certainly have been and there have been Asian people perpetuating anti-black racism over the course of our country. The only reason I bring any of this up is because it's a conversation and it's a discourse that I was seeing and it creates just this sick feeling in my stomach to have to figure out how to make how to how to do what I can to make two marginalized communities 
stop facing each other and start facing the problem. Mm. So in my trying to think about that, I did research and did some digging about how I could connect the dots there, how I could create that bridge. I found a documentary about a woman named Grace Lee Boggs. She died, I think, at the age of 100 back in 2015. Long story short, uh, she was a Chinese-American who went to college, graduated um, back in the you know uh, early to mid-20th century. They wasn't doing women of any hue right Mm -hmm. so it was hard for her to get a job she had to take uh she had to live in an uh an apartment that was a basement someone let her live there for free in the documentary she talks about the only rent was fighting all of the rats that lived there this was a big issue where she was living in, in in detroit so in joining this coalition for housing rights she met black people And she started to see the black struggle and saw the inequities that were everywhere. You were talking about these two realities, you know. That is when this Asian woman, this Asian-American woman named Grace Lee Boggs saw something new. From that day, she dedicated herself to civil rights from uh, from, you know, organizing March. She she organized the uh, March on Woodward in Detroit. We've we've walked down Woodward Avenue. Yeah. She organized the March. I, I believe that was like 1964, 1965. Um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was there, you know, years later when stuff started to get violent in Detroit. The riots of 1967, they blamed her, <laughs> among other people, for that. So this is not somebody who is just an ally. This was somebody who was in the mix. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who all the civil rights leaders knew, who all the police, who the FBI knew. She had an FBI file for for her work in civil rights. Anyway, toward the end of her life, she started to get all these invitations from um, these, these groups that advocate for um, Asian American rights and you know anti-racism, specifically in Asian American communities, I think it's beautiful that we have individuals like that who have bridged this gap, who have worked on both sides of that conversation and understand the real issue. The real issue is not Black folks not supporting Asian people enough. The real issue is not Asian people being racist against Black people despite the fact that that exists, you know, we can get into that. The issue is white supremacy and the divide and conquer tactics that keep us from making progress. I wanted to come on my platform this week and to state that I see the black people who are frustrated by black and Asian social politics, because that is a real thing. We've seen it depicted in in film, for goodness sake, Scott. Think about Do the Right Thing, Mm -hmm. the way that the you know, that, that, that whole dynamic, you know, from the beginning of the movie when things were chill to the end of the movie when shit was going down. I, I see you. If you are a black person and you have those frustrations, I see you. What I also want you and everyone to understand is that we have to work together. And there are, as, there are great, great, great examples of collaboration that I think we need to look back to so that we can figure out how we're going to move forward in the future. Please look up the name Greg. Grace Lee Boggs. I'm dedicating this opus of Triloquy to her legacy. Thank you for your work. Stop Asian hate. We have to work together. See you next time. (laughs) 